it is our uh, normal procedure in this church to go and preach through books in the Bible rather than topical. And I, I kind of enjoy that better. I enjoy going, look, we're going through Luke right now. We were, uh, as many of you know, we, our family took a trip to Europe, and we were in Florence, and in Florence you have the statue of David, you know, that big, whatever it is, 17-foot-high statue by Michelangelo. And when you, the tour guides keep talking about how, you know, Michelangelo would see this big marble, big block of marble, and just, and just rescue the person that's in it, right? Remove all the marble that's not supposed to be there. And free, you know, David. Now, and I really like that image. And I kind of, you know, not that I'm Michelangelo and I don't want to compare myself to Michelangelo, even though it's exactly what I'm doing right now. Is I, I feel that way when you're given what they call a pericope, you know, a thought in Scripture, a passage. And you look at it and you go, okay, there's a sermon in there somewhere and we got to find it, you know. It's a little different when you do the topical sermons. Our session, and I think there's wisdom in it, they've asked me once a month, to do a hot topic because, you know, in the culture we engage things, you know, and it's not just the young people. In general, there's stuff wafting around that the church needs to speak to. The problem if you continue to do topical sermons is you become kind of axe grinding, right? You, you pick what you want to talk about. And I, you know, if we're going to preach the full counsel of God, as Paul says he did, we really can't approach it that way. This morning, I'm going to be talking about church and state. All right, the separation of church and state and what have you, it's a pretty hot topic. And I, 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 in case you don't know, I've been accused in the past of harping on this topic. And I'm going to tell you something, I don't think I do. As a matter of fact, I was looking at all my notes, because I have my sermons going all the way back for 15, 20 years, to see what sermons I've given on church and state. And I couldn't find one. Not one sermon on church and state. So I had to actually write a fresh sermon. It made the job a little harder. Add to that, even at our presbytery, one of our candidates was being interviewed, examined, and one of the questions was, do you plan on preaching things that are political? And, and the desired answer to that question was no, by the way. You, you better not be doing that. And I... I'm like, well, what if the text demands it, right? What if you're in a passage and it talks about things that are political? Are you not going to preach it because it's political? So you can overdo it, you can underdo it. What you've never, never heard from this pulpit, and which I never intend to do, is go through the voter's guide and tell you, you know, who to vote for. But I do think the Bible talks about what it means to be a good citizen and how we should how we should engage in that process. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning. I want to open with three verses, one from the Psalms, one from Proverbs, and one from Second Chronicles. Hear now the word of God. Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen has his own inheritance. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And finally, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal here from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we recognize that your kingdom is not of this world, but it certainly is in this world. And we need to recognize, Father, our responsibility, we pray, in every aspect of our lives, whether it's the way we engage as members of a church, as members of a family, or members of a nation, whether we're members of a team or a, a, a working crew, whatever we are, that we have to recognize that you are to govern all the affairs of our hearts and that we are to respond accordingly. We do pray, Father, that no matter how well we think we do, that we would recognize our utter dependence upon Christ to present us wholly before you. Nonetheless, Father, how then should we live is a question we should ever ask ourselves. And I do pray this morning as we especially focus our attention on this idea of church and state, we would recognize uh, what our responsibilities are to live faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, after about six months of uh, attending church on a regular basis, this uh, atheist guy, who was also an attorney, called for an appointment. And I have to say, I was kind of excited. I was kind of thrilled. You know, I'm, this guy's been coming to church. I mean, just to be frank, I think he had an interest in a young lady in our church. So we meet in my office, and um, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if there's been a transformation. I wonder if, you know, the Holy Spirit is, has taken his heart and turned it into a, a heart of flesh. I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, people come to church for all sorts of, of reasons. Why was he there every week for six months? And now he calls for a meeting. I was very happy to meet with him. I was a little bit curious, and we sit down, and he's across from me in the study. He had listened to me for hours, but I had never listened to him at all, so I was all ears. What do you got to say? What are your questions? He was a thinker. You know, he was somebody who was going to ask thoughtful questions. He had pondered the Christian faith, but there were roadblocks. Something was wrong, and he voiced them. And this is what he asked. Why do Christians insist on forcing their political and ethical beliefs upon others? I have to say, I, I wasn't anticipating that question. I thought he was going to ask a real easy question like, why does God allow evil? <laughs> no, he, he just didn't understand why something as personal and intimate as one's faith should spill over into something political. I mean, one is holy and the other is politics. Like, he just wasn't making that connection. Now, I'd heard this before. As a Christian, I'm often bombarded by some undefined segment of our culture chastising me for seeking to force my beliefs on others, making people live by my morality. I don't know if you've heard that. You know, I've heard that. And I think there seems to be a legitimate confusion and even frustration as to why we would do that. Why would we politically engage in such a way as to force other people to, to live their lives the way we think we ought to live them? 
So I asked my lawyer friend this question. I asked him, so do you think I should vote? And uh, he said, absolutely. Like to him, voting was serious business. You know, he was a, he was a good American and, and voting is a responsibility. People fought and died for our right to vote. So he's like, absolutely, you should vote. Good Americans vote. But isn't it logically necessary that in the very act of voting, a person is seeking to force their beliefs upon everyone who's voting against whatever you might be voting for? It doesn't seem consistent to me to tell me that I should vote and then tell me that I shouldn't seek to force my beliefs on others. That is exactly what voting does. Even the Amish, who tend to extract themselves from the whole political enterprise, when something's going to affect them, they'll vote. Now, let me, let me see. It was brought to my attention recently that things that seem really clear to me aren't always clear to whoever I'm speaking to, and I like to take responsibility as the communicator to be as clear as possible. But you need to take responsibility as the learner to really engage. Okay, so I'm going to try to put some footsteps to what I'm seeking to present here. So come with me into the voting booth. So you walk in that little booth, and, you know, there's propositions, right? Candidates, they're looking at you in that confusing little punch card booklet. And they're saying, pick a number, vote yes, vote no, vote for me, right? And you're there. And you got to start punching holes. Should marriage only be between a man and a woman? Now, that may not be a proposition, but you're going to vote for a candidate who's going to go one way or the other on that, so you got to vote. Should it be illegal to terminate babies prior to birth? Should murderers be put to death? Should there be a death penalty? Should pornography be against the law? Should creation be taught in schools? Should the Pledge of Allegiance, if it should exist at all, include some reference to God? Those, it's all there. And you got your little, little punch thing. So those decisions are before you. When we vote, when you vote, and I'm using voting, but it can be anything in terms of the political process that you're engaging in, right? Voting would be the obvious example. Whose beliefs should we be seeking to force upon others? I have a decision to make. Whose opinion am I supposed to render in that voting booth? You see, I personally believe, those the examples I just gave, that you should vote yes on every one of those. That's my opinion. But you know what? A lot of people have the opposite opinion. And you know how they're going to vote? Yeah, they're going to vote the op opposite way. So they're going to try to force their view upon me, and I'm going to try to force my view upon them, and that's the way it works. It's unavoidable. In a society where people vote, it can be really any action in the whole political exchange. It's just, it's just the way it is. So, what's really going on here? Like, what's the problem? Why is this so controversial? 
If I post something, why does it all of a sudden, you know, my, my Instagram page or my Facebook, why does it light up like a Christmas tree? Since voters necessarily seek to force their beliefs upon others, it would appear the actual objection is against those who have a religious genesis for their system of ethics and belief. That's what's not allowed. This is where the famous separation of church and state, which, by the way, is not in the Constitution, just so you know, becomes the common mantra, right? It's just, that's all you got to say, separation of church and state. Now, I don't have a time for a deep dive here, be it said that the separation of church and state, which, by the way, I agree with. I agree with the separation of church and state, and you can ask me about that during our Q&A time. But the separation of church and state is really different than the separation of God and state. And I, and I think that we need to understand what those terms actually mean if we're going to have an intelligent discussion. As we're going to see in a moment, the founders of this nation had no such intentions of separating God from our civil affairs. People don't want religion forced on them. I get that. If by saying I need a separation in terms of the force of the civil magistrate, I don't want to be forced to go to church against my will, I say amen to that. That's fine. I don't think that's not what we're talking about. But few people fail to understand this, that the Christian faith is a life and world view. My faith and your faith, whatever it is, is not like your health club. It is not like your butcher who I visit and then I forget about and move on with the rest of my day. Your faith, my faith, your belief, my belief, and in the Bible those are the same word, by the way, informs every aspect of our lives. Any decision we make, we're kind of looking at what we believe and go, I'm going, to make a, I'm going to make a decision in accord with my highest belief. And that includes politics. Why is it appropriate for certain people to vote in a manner consistent with what they've learned from their parents? Say you vote in a certain way and they're like, well, where, where are you getting that? Well, I'm getting that from my parents, all right. Where are you getting that? Well, I'm getting that from the, the tabloids. Okay, that's fine. Where did you get that? Well, I learned that on Seinfeld. Sit, sitcoms. But it's inappropriate for me to vote in a manner consistent with what I've learned from Scripture, right? When I learned it from this rock concert, boy, that guy got up there and he inspired me. Oh, but, oh that's fine. I, I learned that from the Bible. Mm, sorry, violation. You see, if I believe that the scriptures are the zenith of truth and wisdom, why would I look elsewhere in terms of appropriate choices in the booth? That doesn't make any sense at all. It would appear that people offer, and we shouldn't be surprised at this because the Bible says that's the case, People offer one disqualified option when it comes to political decision-making. If you're making a political decision that you have derived from studying your Bible, that's out. But why? 
Why does the origin of my ideal somehow disqualify them or me from playing a part in the public arena? Why is that the case? Why are the teachings of Moses, why are the teachings of the Apostle Paul considered unacceptable influences in the venue of civic conscience, while the sentiments of Oprah and the sentiments of Bruce Springsteen or Sean Penn, or even, let's take it back, Hobbes or Descartes or Voltaire or Bacon, yet if you went back to Enlightenment thinker, why are they allowed? But not Moses, not the Apostle Paul. It hardly seems fair to disqualify my opinion because you don't like its origin. There's a, that's a fallacy. It's called a genetic fallacy. It's wrong because of where it came from. People should vote, and again, and whether it's voting or some other political engagement, in a manner consistent with their highest belief. Everybody should. The Christian source for our highest ideals is the Bible. It trumps all human wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, the Bible says, Proverbs teach, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will keep your path straight. In all your ways, including politics. Now, I mean, again, we can apply all of this to family, we certainly could apply it to church, you could apply it to every venue in life. But for some reason, in terms of a hot topic, it's politics that is out. And a lot of Christians are believing the lie. Maybe you've heard this objection. I remember hearing it the first time when I was in high school. You know what? You can't legislate morality. Have you heard this? You can't legislate morality. But the determination of crimes, which, by the way, is the primary purpose of politics. The primary purpose of politics is to determine what's a crime and what's not a crime. That's what the, they're legislators. You know what a legislator is? They're lawmakers. That's what we vote people in for, to make laws. And a crime, by its very nature, should be immoral. See, it's not a very well-thought-out proposition when somebody says you can't legislate morality. That's exactly what you need to legislate. If stealing isn't immoral, why would it be a crime? But you say it, it goes out into the atmosphere, it kind of sounds good, and then people just buy it. It's just the opposite. We shouldn't be legislating things that are morally neutral. Now, at this point, I'm going to take a turn. And I want, to, I want to be very clear here in terms of this little leg I'm taking in the river. I want to be clear that even if our country, the United States of America, did not have a distinctly Christian foundation, it should have. Now, I'm saying this because I think it's important for you to understand that I'm not trying to canonize the United States of America or equating it to the kingdom of heaven. I think America's greatness is based upon how well it will submit itself to that which comes from the kingdom of heaven, but it's not the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, I think it's important that we realize that, and you, it's, this is a lie that has just kind of 
I mean, it's, you can talk about wafting through the atmosphere. It's simply false that our founders were irreligious in the establishment of this country. About 10 years ago, the Los Angeles Times ran a full-page ad. I don't know how much it costs to have a full-page ad in the LA Times. It wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't cheap. And in that ad, across the top, the banner across the top was, celebrate our godless constitution. And the ad framed six founding fathers accompanied by, and I, I did, I remember doing my homework on this, accompanied by dubious, out-of-context quotations designed to enlighten the reader to the general disdain these fathers had when it came to God's unwanted intrusion into the political affairs of men. You understand what they were trying to do? They're kind of like, going, hey, we have a constitution. It's a godless constitution. And here's some of the guys who signed it, who wrote it, who were part of it. And here are quotations from them letting everybody know that they think God should just stay out of it. The ad was sponsored by this organization called the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Now, I, I wrote here in my notes, I won't take too much time here, but if there's anything I need to confess of during our confession time, it's when I write something like that and I know it's not going to be true. But I'm going to try to go quickly here because I want to debunk this obvious error, this idea that the founders of this nation and I want to turn this into a social studies class. But I think it's important because that's what you're going to hear. That the founders of this nation were thinking a certain way. John Adams, the second president, writing to his wife Abigail, and he thought the 4th of July was going to be the 2nd of July, but so nonetheless, there's a whole paragraph that where he was writing. He's basically going, look at, he goes, we need to celebrate the 4th of July. And then he describes kind of what happens in the 4th of July to this day. Parties and, you know, explosions and barbecues and what have you. But he also wrote this, that the day should be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It was Adam's opinion, which by the way was the general opinion of the founders of this nation, that acknowledging the God of Scripture was necessary not only for us to have the independence, but for the independence to continue. Not only to have the freedom, but for the freedom to continue. Benjamin Franklin, you know, and a lot of people will question their theology, and maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, they weren't writing a confession, they were writing a constitution. But Franklin, I think, mirrored Adam's resolve in a very famous speech he gave in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, and he wrote this, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And then he went on in his inimitable style to press the issue, quote, I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. That's Ben Franklin. Everybody in the political arena bows before his altar. Now, 600 years before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah, because I, you know, I want to go away here from America for a while, 
because I think what they were saying was biblical. So let me give you some biblical examples. The prophet Jeremiah anticipating Babylon, talking about Babel, Babylon was about to come and attack Israel. And in the prophecy of that, in Jeremiah 6.19, we read this. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts. Why? Because they have not heeded my words nor my laws, but rejected it. So that nation was going to receive judgment because they were rejecting the law of God. They were rejecting the word of God. See, Israel at the time had developed a system of government and behavior, not just government, but behavior, which promoted and justified oppression, violence, plundering, and false religion. Sound familiar? Similar to present-day America, they were operating under their own godless life and worldview. Every man was doing, we see this as a theme, in, right? And all the men were doing that, which was what? Right in their own eyes. They weren't doing what was wrong in their eyes. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, which, by the way, was wrong. And when people govern based upon their own life and worldview, when people actually say, look at I'm going to do what I think is right, you know what happens? It leads to the oppression of the poor. It leads to the violence of the defenseless. And here's one you don't hear very often, but it also leads to the plundering of the productive. Everybody suffers when we reject the Word of God. And it's often done in the name of charity. It's done in the name of progress. It's not like the king got up or the politician gets up and goes, look, we're going to take your stuff. No, we're, we're going to do this. And they have like fancy names, right? Little positive names. And by the way, get your wallet out. An early warning came to Israel from God that I think Adams and Franklin, I think all of the founders valued as wise counsel. We read it in Jeremiah 6, 8. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. You know, we, we talk about judgments of, of nations. Could there be a worse judgment than a country without a soul? I mean, I, I think it's kind of a metaphor. I don't think countries have souls per se. But you get the idea, right? I mean, don't, don't we kind of feel it that, that, you know, we just got a bunch of talking suits and there's just nothing behind their eyes and there's no soul in the decisions that they're making, and are we not all feeling the weight of that if it moves in that direction, and we're encouraged to stay out of the process? As for me, I take rank with Adams. Whatever one thinks this or really any country should be, the notion that the founders and their predecessors did not view America as a Christian enterprise requires a tower of suspended disbelief. You've got to be entirely ignorant of history in order for you to believe it, when people take out a full-page ad talking about a godless constitution. Let me just give you a few examples. Moses holding the Ten Commandments is the central figure atop the Supreme Court building where the Supreme Court meets. Also, in the courtroom, there is the Ten Commandments with Moses. The Bible verses, and I've been there, maybe you've been there, Bible verses are etched in virtually every building in our nation's capital. You can't walk around without seeing a Bible verse here, here, and here. And as I was doing some research to make sure I wasn't getting this wrong, 
One tour group said, if we really wanted to show you all the Bible verses on all the buildings, from the Library of Congress to Capitol Hill, plan on three days. I mean, even in Hermosa Beach, the junior high, both my sisters went to, we moved from Hermosa to Redondo, so I went to Hillcrest, which is now Paris, but they went to Pier Avenue, which is now a community center. What's on the side of the building? A Bible verse. Can you imagine today a school being built with a Bible verse carved into the granite? James Madison stated that, quote, we have staked the whole of our political institution upon the capacity of mankind to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Patrick Henry said, quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often. And I thought this was such an interesting statement, that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since 1777, every session of Congress has opened with what? Prayer. By a preacher paid for with tax dollars. I'm still waiting for my call. <laughs> 52 of the 55 founders of the Constitution were members in good standing of Orthodox Christian churches. The Mayflower Compact, now, so now we're going back earlier, right? This is kind of a pre-constitutional document when they first came over, so it was prior to America being America, but it kind of set the stage, set the tone. The Mayflower Compact opened with the words, quote, in the name of God, amen, followed by having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plan the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. They didn't shy away. They didn't talk about some ambiguous God. They talked about Jesus Christ. And even between the Mayflower Compact and the Constitution, we got a little less specific in terms of which God we're actually talking about. Nonetheless, the introductory paragraph of the Declaration of Independence appeals to, quote, the laws of nature and what? And nature's God. Jefferson found it fitting and within the boundaries of his view of the separation of church and state, whatever that might be, to indicate, indicate, quote, men are endowed by their what? Creator with certain unalienable rights. By the way, you remove creator from that, you're going to remove rights from that. He justified his intentions by, quote, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. It is certainly true that the establishment clauses in the First Amendment indicate, quote, Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It is in there. And to that I say, amen. I, you know, they had the Church of England. I'm not looking for the Church of America. I don't want either Biden or Newsom to don an Episcopal mitre and start serving communion. Right? We don't... We, I mean, the, the Holy Roman Empire demonstrated that you don't want those two things in the same authority structure. Right? You have one and you have the other. So we, that's what that's talking about, that we're not going to have a Church of America. This, they're not saying God needs to stay out of the affairs of man. We don't want this to take place. But as I've said, 
And this has just got to be clear. The separation of church and state is not the same as the separation of God and state. The church is an institution. I mean, I mean, there's a few different definitions of church that we see in the Bible, right? The invisible church and the universal church and what have you. But what we're talking about here is this idea of a church with pastors and elders and deacons and a governing body that makes choices. Churches should not be putting people in prison. Churches should not be administering the death penalty and so forth. And neither should states be baptizing people. These need to be separate. But, that's, it's a, but whether it's the church or the family or the state, they all need to be under God. You understand the difference here? It was clear to Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address that, quote, this nation was under God, as well as in his Emancipation Proclamation, where he appeals to, quote, the gracious favor of the Almighty God. And look at it, I could go on and on and on. And I've just got to stop just out of sheer lack of time. But the idea that the founders of this country did not depend upon and rely on the ultimate and transcendent authority found in the God of the Holy Scriptures is simply false. Of course, we're moving away now from American history. This is biblical. What they were trying to be was biblical. Hundreds of years before the Constitution was written, John Calvin wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is maybe the best non-biblical book in the history of the church. And a lot of people, and I'm going to get to this in a second, a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's not, you know, it's not within reform distinctions for us to engage in the political process. We need to stay out of that. We need to stay in our own wheelhouse and so forth. And, and they'll actually appeal to quotes by Calvin to justify their position. And let me tell you, I mean, I've been in the ministry for almost 40 years. I've been here for 33 years. I've read John Calvin's opinion on every verse I've ever preached. I feel like I know him pretty well. As a matter of fact, when we went to Calvin's church and I saw the place where he, was, where he preached, I actually had an emotional response, which, you know, I just don't normally have. But in his preface to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, we read the following, and it's dedicated to Francis, the king of the French, right? So he's a political figure, his sovereign, the guy who's in charge of his political environment. And I would suggest this, I mean, it's going to be up here in a second, that there's no way that we can read what Calvin wrote in any way, in any context, without drawing the conclusion that it's saying exactly what it's saying. Right? Some people will go, well, in context, it means something different. But I'm going to tell you, it doesn't mean something different. It means exactly what it's going to look like when we put it up there. And he wrote this. Now, he's writing to the king. Right? I mean, by the way, this is a dangerous environment. It's not like writing a letter to the president that he's never going to probably read. You're writing to somebody who can just make a phone call. Well, he didn't have phones, right? But he could ring a bell and say, can you go kill that guy? The characteristic of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that in the administration of his kingdom, he is a minister of God. By the way, that's why we have prime ministers. They're ministers of God. 
He who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts the part, not of a king, but of a robber. He, moreover, deceives himself who anticipates long prosperity to any kingdom which is not ruled by the scepter of God, that is, by his divine word. For the heavenly oracle is infallible, which is declared, and then he quotes what's on the building at Pier Avenue Junior High, where there is no vision, the people perish. You see what Calvin is saying? He's, he's basically saying, look at, if you don't rule by the word of God, you're a robber. You're a usurper. And you know what? Your kingdom's not going to last. It's just what Benjamin Franklin said 300 years later. They understand that if you want to have any longevity, whether it's your church or whether it's your nation, you need to, to, to bow the knee to Christ. Read Psalm 2. Right? I've established my son. Right? With a, with a rod of iron, those who will not kiss the sun will find themselves under judgment. It's perspicuously biblical. The Freedom from Religion Foundation, and by the way, they have some religion. Everybody's got it. You can call it whatever. It's like R.C. Sproul said, everybody's a philosopher, just not everybody's a good philosopher. And everybody's religious but not everybody will indicate that they're religious. They have some other term. But obviously, you have some immaterial convictions governing your morality. I don't know what it is, but you have it. But they boast in their appeal to reason. We just need to be reasonable in their effort to beguile us toward a notion of godless constitution and the liberty thereof. We're just going to be, we will be free if God will just leave us alone. If you people talking about God, then we're going to have true freedom. Perhaps we would do well to ponder the godless systems of the 20th century under people who try to govern in a godless way, like Ho Chi Minh or Pol Pot or Mao or Stalin or Hitler. The only liberation found under these leaders who were thought to govern in a godless environment were innocent people who were liberated from their own lives. And that's what happens when people will not bow the knee to Christ. Now, I appreciate the head nodding. I mean, I'm getting a lot of, yeah. And I have to say, I don't feel like, I don't feel like what I'm saying here is all that confusing. There's a God in heaven, and we should do what he says. And yet somehow we just kind of go, oh, wait a minute, you know, and, and there are these errors that are pervasive, and, and they're in the church. So let me just briefly address some of these. Now I read, uh, we, op we opened this morning with, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, righteousness exalts a nation, if my people who are called by my name will pray and humble themselves, I will heal their land. All right, these are all out of the Old Testament, and everybody is in agreement that the immediate and primary application of these passages was to the nation Israel at the time. Okay, that's like he's, he's writing, and the Israelites are the ones reading it, and that's the immediate application, but there is an anticipatory application as well. Right? It's not just for them. The Word of God, 1 Corinthians, wasn't written just for the church at Corinth. Right? It was written for us. So there's some application to us. And this is where the agreements and <clears throat> the dispensationalists, for example, will say that, no, these promises were made to Israel. And they're still made to Israel. 
and it's wrong to associate those promises to any nation other than Israel. And some dispensationalists will say, well, it's current Israel, or it's Israel in the millennium in the future. They'll say that. <clears throat> I don't have time to get into that, but if you listen to my series on Revelation, you have to listen to the whole thing over again. <laughs> there are those within, a little closer to home, in the, you know, what we call the Reformed community, who would isolate these blessings to the church. They'd say, oh, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't, a na- this isn't for a nation. This is for the, the church. The nation, according to this view, was Israel in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, it's the church. Now, where certain aspects of the Old Covenant economy certainly see their fulfillment in the New Covenant institutional church, I think, I think there's a certain level of truth to that, Right? because they're God's people, and the church is God's people. But let me tell you this. You know what exegesis is? Exegesis is the idea of reading the Bible and taking out from the Bible that which the Bible is saying, as opposed to eisegesis, where you're imposing your view into the Bible. Right? One is you're taking it from, the other one you're putting it in. I'm telling you it's eisegesis. I'm going to tell you that it's exegetically strenuous to read the Bible in such a way as to conclude that the word nation means anything but nation. It may include the church, but to read your Bible in such a way to go, look at it, of all the things that word nation can mean, the idea of it referring to a nation is the last thing that it means. Nation means nation. And just so you know, you know, because I anticipate questions, because people in our church raise their hand in Q&A, ask questions, In the Septuagint, the word nation, because the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was around during the time of Christ, the the Greek word for nation was ethnos. And it's the same word that we see in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. So it's not some different word. By the way, the psalm, which we opened with today, is very universal. And it's very general, generational in its nature. It's not just going, it's just this one generation. Psalm 33, 8 through 11, we read, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. See, this idea that, well, no, we we should not think that nations throughout the course of history, if they obey these passages, will find themselves blessed, I think is is anti-biblical. In one Reformed book, seeking to de-emphasize the Christian's participation in culture, the subtitle of this book reads, this would be a quiz, right? Because it's a question. So if I were to ask you, but maybe, maybe, you wouldn't, maybe you don't want to answer out loud. Is America a mission field or battlefield? Don't, hey, don't be jumping in right now because this could be bad for you. And, it, and the book is basically going, we need to quit battling the culture war. That's not our job. 
Let's just stay in our churches. Pastors, stay. You got two and a half square feet. You know, you stay there. Don't be coming out here. Stay in your little box. Don't try to get. It's not a battlefield. It's only a mission field. Well, which is it? You know what? And as I was reading this book and I was reading the jacket, I realized these false dichotomies are all over it. Because the obvious answer is both. It's a mission field and it's a battlefield. Think about the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Mission. The mission field. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Battlefield. Paul calls it a warfare. Continual warfare. It's both. And the idea that we do one to the exclusion of the other is an error. I think we can overemphasize. We could, you know, that's why we don't do topical sermons every Sunday because you could kind of spend too much time here and too much time there. But the answer to that question is it's both. Think about that Great Commission, by the way. We are to, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All the nations. Have you ever, okay, we use that when we baptize, right? And we should. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to throw this out and maybe it'll just cause you to do some homework. But what is the antecedent of them, baptizing them? Who is them referring to? The nations. How do you baptize a nation? You're making disciples of the nations. Baptizing them, that's plural. Somehow, somehow the Bible is saying that nations should be baptized. All right, I'm just going to leave it out there. <laughs> and let me finish up because I'm way, at, way past my time. I want to finish up with this, um, just kind of stealing a speech from Woodrow Wilson, who I'm not a big fan of. Well, he's dead, but not speak ill of the dead, but he's been dead for a long time, and in my opinion, kind of ruined Princeton, or at least one of the guys who ruined Princeton's seminary. But he did write a good speech called The New Freedom, where he gave a definition of liberty that I think is counterintuitive in today's culture of functional individualistic narcissism that we live, you know, that when my freedom is just me being able to do whatever I want to do. And I do think, again, what I'm going to say here can apply not only to the political arena, but to your family or any community that you find yourself in, the church and, or what have you. And I want to end with this because I think what's important for us to understand is in this battle where we're seeking to bring the wisdom of the law of God into the arena, what we're not trying to do is make people miserable. What we're trying to do is be a blessing. That there's something beautiful about a people who will submit and bow the knee to the wisdom of the holy God. There's something about that that should be appealing. Wilson compared liberty, he's talking about liberty, to a great piece of, quote, powerful machinery. So you got this big machine, and if the parts of the machine were awkwardly and unskillfully assembled, 
the whole thing would buckle up. You ever have that happen when you buy something that needs assembly and you're like, oh, well, this drawer doesn't even shut right. And the instructions don't even have words anymore, right? It's just pictures of a guy. That's how dumb we are. No matter how powerful the individual pieces Wilson was talking about, if they fail to harmoniously submit themselves to the singular master blueprint, everyone's quest for individual freedom and blessing will result only in corporate bondage. Every piece needs to kind of look at the instruction manual. Where do I fit? Where do I fit in order for the whole thing to work? Liberty for the several parts, according to Wilson, would consist in the best possible assembling and adjustment of them all. Have you ever noticed, I mean, this is, you know, I have to give you a sports illustration, and it's my opinion that all-star teams are not always the best team. You're managing egos, everybody wants the ball every single time. I mean, they're just not always the best team. It is the team of players who selflessly grasp their roles in place, their personal quests, their personal ambitions beneath the master game plan. Those are the ones who go home with a ring. Wilson posited that freedom and its attending happiness would never result from individualistic detachment or the scattered worldviews of people who do not want to be a nation under God but offer no alternative. If you quote, if you want the great piston of the engine to run with absolute freedom, he added, give it absolute perfect alignment and adjustment with the other parts of the machine so that it is free, not because it is left alone or isolated, but because it has been associated most skillfully and carefully with the other parts of the great structure. Can you say that about your marriages? Can you say that about parenting? Can you say that about the way you interact with your siblings? Is that the way it is at work? where you're kind of going, like, I know my role, I know my responsibility, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to do it according to the will of God. You know, there's endless discussion about the tempestuous nature of the Middle East right now, right? You can't take a step without hearing what's going on in the Middle East. And by the way, it's nothing new. I mean, that started with the great idea of that Abraham and Sarah had with Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael, and they're still, the problems are still there. And they, you know, they, they decided, let's do it our way. I'm not sure if God's going to come through here, and they created a problem that still exists to this very day. Having said that, the great R.J. Rushduni was asked one time about the Middle East, and he gave the answer that is the only solution to that problem, and it doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of it. He gave the answer that's the only solution. They said, the, the, the radio host said, who owns that land? And Rush Dooney said, Jesus Christ owns that land. There's not going to be peace in the Middle East. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2, we're going to learn peace on earth. The requisite for peace on earth is faith in Christ. That's the only answer. Wilson went on to compare liberty to a boat skimming on the water. How free she runs, he said. True freedom is found by how perfectly the boat adjusts to the force of the wind, obeys the great breath out of the heavens that fills her sails. If the boat resists the wind, she will halt and stagger. Every sheet will shiver. 
and her whole frame will be shaken. She's in irons. You can't resist the wind. Resistance to the Creator's precepts and statutes puts man at the mercy of man and all of his capricious tendencies. You know, it's not without reason that James calls God's law, you know what he calls it? The perfect law of liberty. Wilson concludes his metaphor by suggesting that the boat will only find its freedom, quote, when you have let her fall off again, recover once more her nice adjustments, and I love this, to the forces she must obey and cannot defy. Christians, by the way, believe true and eternal freedom, and I don't want to be unclear here, has been purchased by Christ and freely given to those who call upon his name. The only one who's always, always been in rhythm with that wind out of heaven was Jesus Christ. But freedom in the sense of human liberty consists of nothing less than the skillful adjustment of humanity to the perfect law of God. The more we are perfectly aligned with the law, the more our freedom, the greater our blessing when we obey the breath out of heaven, our sails as a people will be full. When we throw our heads back and stiffen our necks to the law of God, we too, we shall halt and we shall stagger until we adjust to that benevolent force which we must obey and we cannot defy. Friends, we live in an environment where the world is quite comfortable in accusing Christians of hypocrisy. You ever hear that? Hypocrite, hypocrite. You know, and it's, it's not hard to do. All you can do is hang out with somebody long enough to look at their life, and you can just start making the accusations. But let me tell you this. That is exactly what the world wants you to be when it comes to you walking into that voting booth. They want you, you know, in church to go, my highest ideal is God. But when I go in there, I'm going to be the double-minded man and vote in a manner inconsistent with what I believe. That's hypocrisy. That's double-mindedness. Don't do it. We, we, you have to have the courage to not allow yourself to succumb to the pressures of the world who's just going to hurl insults at you. We are to be a people who humble, humble ourselves before God. We are to pray and seek His face. We are to turn from our wicked ways. Then God will hear. And when He hears, we will find forgiveness of our sins and we will find healing of our land. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would grant us individually the wisdom to know how we ought to govern our own affairs according to your word. We do pray, Father, that your spirit would attend the affairs of man in such a way that we would recognize the folly of resisting that which comes from heaven, that force, that power which we cannot resist, which we must obey if we want to find ourselves experiencing the true liberty that you and you alone can provide. But may we never trust, no matter how well any nation does, that any nation can somehow deliver us from the judgment of the living God. There is only one, and it is Christ, and may we ever trust in him, recognizing this, that he is the answer to the affairs of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.